Welcome to Vine Pair, a podcast about the conversations we have with a glass in hand. From New York City, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And today we're going to talk a little bit about emerging markets, um, in particular in the United States. And first off, let's talk about what that phrase even means, because it's a nice catchy phrase to describe what I think we would think of as sort of wine markets outside of the classic ones in the United States, places not New York or San Francisco or Chicago or uh, say Las Vegas. But Adam, do you have a sense for kind of what defines in your mind an emerging market as opposed to maybe a market where people drink wine? So I think we we need to look at the market in two different ways. First, uh, we have to look at the market as uh, a market that is emerging in terms of it's finally embracing wine or is embracing wine in a more robust way. So therefore, uh, you know, you have the proliferation of wine bars, you have the expansion of wine shops, basically anything that's outside of the chain restaurants and the grocery stores selling wine. That That's one way you define an emerging market. The other way you define an emerging market is a market that was currently drinking a specific style of wine. It's an established wine market, but a smaller market. So basically outside your major metros of New York, uh, Chicago, San Francisco, and LA, those are looked at as the four most established wine markets in the country with actually Houston, sorry, Zach, being fifth. Uh, Seattle weirdly doesn't get uh, probably the the play it should as an established wine drinking market. Uh, it really, when you look at it from the DMA, you look at those five markets as the main markets that people are going after. Um, and so if you're outside of those markets, it's th- these markets are considered to be markets that are catching up to those major markets. Um, and what that means is they're, they're not as quick to be drinking natural wine or uh, Gamay from Beaujolais or Chenin from the Loire, things like that. Um, they're still drinking wines the majority of Americans drink, which I think is completely fine. Um, so we, we want to sort of define what we mean when we're saying those two terms, because if, if you're talking to, you know, someone like me, emerging market, in my mind, is a, is a market that's really starting to embrace wine for the first time. But to a lot of uh, Psalms, especially based in these more established five markets, they would say emerging means, oh, they're finally drinking our wine. Mm-hmm. So in in those kinds of in this conversation, I think it's going to be interesting to talk about both um, because you know one of the cities that that I know you have chatted about a little bit is Atlanta. Atlanta is for sure an established wine drinking market, but it's a market that's getting gear. Um, Denver, same way. Whereas I think like the research triangle of North Carolina is really just finally embracing wine. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And there is that real distinction to be drawn between markets where there's a strong wine tradition. I think a lot of like the Northeast is a great example of this. Markets like Boston or Philadelphia where people drink a lot of wine, but what they drink has not necessarily changed as much as say it's certainly changed in New York or even um, other markets that might be in some ways smaller, but because of that are more nimble. Like I've talked to a lot of people who who sell in the Northeast and they until very recently, basically sold the same kinds of wines over and over again. And right. that is, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a matter of like understanding that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with drinking the same wine that you've always drank. But yeah, from a from a song perspective in particular, it's like, well, how hip are you to new trends? And maybe from a other perspective, maybe writer, podcaster perspective, there's this question of like, are you interested in exploring new things? It doesn't necessarily matter what those things are. They don't have to be what the professionals in those you know big five markets are are into but but are you exploring are you expanding are new things coming into that market and finding traction or are they coming up against a wall of already established wines and falling flat totally i guess to start this conversation off like 
what do you, as someone who works, uh, you know, on the floor as a sommelier, um, how do you look at emerging markets? Um, and why do you think emerging markets in the world of wine are so exciting? Well, I think it's two reasons. I think one is you you have to remember sort of who your audience is. And I think it's a great thing for me. You know, I think Seattle is this weird sort of transitional market where you have this combination of um, a lot of new money in Seattle. You have a lot of um, people who want to get into wine but don't necessarily have a lot of experience with wine. And you have a strong local wine industry that for a lot of those people is a natural sort of immediate path to take. So a lot of the excitement for a lot of people is in local wine. And I think that's great. I'm definitely a Washington wine advocate in general. But I also think that it can be its own sort of circular trap wherein people kind of never leave that area. They never sort of move their focus broader. And so I think, you know, emerging markets, what I look for is kind of what relationship, if any, do they have with established wine regions, either in the United States or um, abroad? It's always interesting to see, you know, there are certain markets, like I think of Denver as having a really strong connection with Italy, even though like there's not, you know, it's not any closer to Italy than, you know, the rest of the United States or anything. But there's just, a, there's there's something about the, I don't, and I don't know what it is, maybe we could we could get someone from Denver to kind of come on, but it's always been my, my perception of that market, at least, that there's a lot of that there. And Whereas, like, you might look at other markets, you know, uh, Portland, Oregon, down south of me, you know, has really, even more than Seattle, kind of taken on that mantle of, of natural wine and run with it. Um, you know, some of that's probably not surprising, given the sort of cultural yeah. <laughs> stereotypes about Portland. Uh, it, I didn't say it was incongruous, just it's definitely there. So, so it's always interesting to kind of look at sort of what the established wine culture is in these places, if there is one, and then what are people, ex- what are people trying to trying to sell there. So it's really, I I don't, I think emerging markets, again, they kind of become this very muddled thing very quickly, which is why I wanted to talk about them to try and sort of tease out a little bit more understanding for myself and hopefully for those of you listening about what we talk about when we talk about these markets, because they are all a little bit different. But it's also to me, the, the last part of it is, is to what extent, and I think this is an important thing to look at, are, is there a diversity in terms of distribution? So yeah. one of the challenges with a lot of smaller markets or, you know, markets, and some of this is driven by legal issues and not necessarily the market itself. There's lots of complicated liquor laws in the United States. But a lot of it is basically, if your distribution is being handled in that market by just a few big companies, you are naturally going to have fewer options. And the options you have that say represent, I don't know, um, you know, Chianti are going to be defined by the large scale Chianti that's imported into the United States by the big importers and then distributed by the big distribution companies. And so if you're in a market where you're seeing a proliferation of small and medium-sized distributors and even really, really small distributors with a really narrow focus, that to me is sort of some of the natural – you need to have that sort those sort of conditions for it to be a fertile emerging market because without a diversity of wine, without some specialized wines, it's kind of hard to get excited about anything because you're kind of looking at wines that, as you know, you talked about right at the top – you mostly find it like on grocery store shelves and they can be good yeah. wines. That's not to say those wines are bad. It's just, there isn't diversity and there isn't novelty in the way that there is. If there are people selling, um, you know, just a, a small portfolio of wines with a particularly narrow focus. Yeah. I think it's important as we, we chat about emerging markets, uh, today, sort of look at it through the, the lens of, of business financials. And in that case, I really do think it comes down to where can you go to make money. Yeah. So if you're a producer, right, why would you be wasting your time? So if you come to me and you, uh, you know, you're a, a producer in France or Italy or Spain, and you said to me, Adam, where should I go 
to sell my wine. The immediate thing I would say to you is don't go to New York, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, or Houston. And you say, but Adam, like I want to be there. Everybody's there. And my argument would be, no, you go to an emerging market because an emerging market is where you can stand out because these are markets that are starved for producers. I talk to producers all the time who say to me, I've never had better treatment than when I've gone to Atlanta and visited with the Psalms there or when I've gone to Nashville or Cleveland or places like that because these are markets that the wine industry for the most part ignores and shouldn't be ignoring. Um, and so the Psalms who are there and who are just as well-trained and who are just as passionate about wine as the Psalms in these bigger markets are super pumped to have these producers in their markets. And they give those wines more attention than I guarantee you those wines have ever gotten in the big markets that they think they want to be in because no one is going to those markets to pay attention to them in the first place. So I mean, I think that's what makes emerging markets so exciting for wine producers because the country is so big and there is such a huge you know, new ex- exposure of wine to the majority of the public and people are, are embracing wine faster than ever that there are all these opportunities that exist outside of the traditional places that you would normally have gone back in the day in order to first enter the United States market. It's funny. That reminded me of conversations I had with some producers uh, in Europe this past year. It wasn't even necessarily about markets. It was almost more of a stylistic conversation. But it reminds me that a lot of people's perspective and perception of the American wine market is sadly out of date. And that includes people within the United States, but it certainly is a case for people outside of the United States where probably 10, 15, 20 years ago before you and I were legally able to drink wine, it might have made sense if you were a producer to really focus on those few markets. There wasn't necessarily the infrastructure to support a lot of kind of nuanced, uh, less well-known, more obscure wines from Europe or wherever in in the sort of second or third tier markets. And there wasn't the the some community to embrace them. There weren't the restaurants or stores to sell them in. But that is really untrue. And I'm always struck now when I travel around the U.S. at like lists I look at, shops I go into that I'm just like, wow, like this is really cool. You guys have a really diverse set of wines and it's not what you might expect. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Like this, this is kind of the, the conversation that has to be had in both directions about like, if you stay away, if you don't, if you only focus on those big five or six or seven markets and you, you're not only are you avoiding markets that might do um, a lot of good, but you're sort of perpetuating this continued issue of like, you're never going to get into those markets. You're never going to be able to expand your sales beyond those those five or six markets because you're treating them like they don't have a dedicated wine consuming base, which is, again, that's just outdated. It's stupid. I mean, I, I get questions all the time. How do I become the next Whispering Angel or how do I become the next you know, big champagne brand? Like, well, because first of all, they go to all the markets. They're not just sitting here in New York trying to get on every list. They're, they're down. Wait, I'd, like to, Bur- I'd like to disagree with you for a moment. I'm pretty sure the correct answer is, answer is Instagram. Well, that's true too, <laughs> but they're also, but also when they're on Instagram, when they're, uh, you know, spending money on digital marketing dollars, all these kinds of things, they also are in Birmingham, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's they're they have the distribution, they're pushing into these markets and they have people on the ground. I mean, we know, for example, with Whispering Angel, like they have, you know, representatives in all these major, you know, second tier markets because they understand that that's important. Um, I think, you know, 
you th- if you think about those kinds of markets, that's where you win. And so that that's why I think a market like Atlanta, for example, is super uh, exciting. And I think if you're thinking as a business person, uh, so you know we want to think ultimately and unfortunately that all winemakers do have to be business people, right? Unless you're uh, a winemaker that's connected to a winery, maybe in Napa, that's owned by a very wealthy person who is really doing the business side, and they just hired you to do uh, the winemaking. As the winemaker, especially in a lot of these you know, wineries coming from European countries, you're everything, right? The family is, you're the business, you're the winery, you're the marketing department, you're everything. And so I think what's important to, to focus on is looking at cities. What I would, would tell wine, wine producers is look at cities where young people are fleeing to from these major markets because they're affordable. So the best place to identify where the next emerging market is and where wine I think is going to explode is where is the cost of living low? but the quality of life is high. Mm-hmm. And when you look at those types of markets, I think those are going to be the next big wine markets in the United States, which is why Atlanta is one that I, I always, always, always push because Atlanta has a very low cost of living with a very high quality of life, huge bang for your buck. I think you live like you're making a hundred thousand dollars salary. I'd have to pull the exact figure, but I think I read somewhere. It's like, it's like if you made a hundred grand in New York, you have to make 40 grand in Atlanta or something like that. I mean, that's, that's a crazy difference in the amount of money you need to make to have a, a, a very nice lifestyle. And so you see sommeliers from these bigger markets moving to cities like Atlanta because they can run multiple restaurants. They can finally have families. They don't have to be on the floor all the time. And they could even open restaurants if they wanted to. And so therefore, they're they're bringing all the kind of wine knowledge they've gained in these other places, and they're opening in these new markets, and they're spreading this gospel, and there was always a hungry population for it. So like that's why Atlanta is successful and exciting in Nashville, the Research Triangle of um, North Carolina, you know, Minneapolis, Pittsburgh. These are all markets that are booming. And follow the tech money. Yeah. Right. If tech if tech is thinking about going to these markets, right? I mean, Uber has a huge research facility. Google has a huge research facility in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to start bringing tech money into these markets, people are going to start wanting to buy wine. So let's talk a little bit about what kind of prompted this thought um, for me and this question for me, which was a piece that was on VinePair recently about Pittsburgh specifically. And yep. it was certainly a market that I hadn't really thought about. Um, you know, that's my own. Uh, prejudice or what? Not prejudice, but um, ignorance, I suppose. You're a West Coaster. It's yeah, fine. it's true. Pittsburgh's <laughs> a long ways away. Um, and uh, and I, what I was really struck by was sort of another part of this puzzle, which is you know, in the case of Pittsburgh and in the um, in the piece that Stephanie Kane wrote, you know, it sort of really sounds like in a lot of ways what's gone on in Pittsburgh has been sparked, and maybe not entirely, or certainly not entirely, but in large part um, by an, a specific sommelier, um, John Wabeck. And yep. the piece is great. You should read it. I don't want to read the piece here. But I think what I really considered interesting was sort of this idea that maybe this guy showing up who was a little bit more or more accomplished, more um, experienced, had you know was an advanced sommelier, all those things really galvanized the community. Do you, do you kind of sense that that's, that's also a necessary condition in some of these markets that there have to be a a few people who really drive the market forward or can it happen organically without someone like that? I think it's really helpful when you have a person driving it forward. I mean, I think, you know, it it can happen organically, but it's, 
it doesn't happen as often. I mean, for example, like uh, a profile piece that I wrote uh, about six months ago on Patrick Capiello moving to Philadelphia. I mean, Philadelphia is an established market, obviously, but it has some issues because of uh, the 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 law, the alcohol laws in the state, which you know make sure make it that all alcohol has to go through the state in order to be purchased, including wine. So distributors are kind of have their hands tied. There's not as much access to really great uh, juice, and he came to Philadelphia and started doing all of these, you know, some special happy hours and tasting groups, things like that. And you hear that, oh my God, no one knew the Psalms that were in Philly were starved for this. No one had done it. No one had created, you know, hangout groups for the Psalms. No one had thought about, oh, let's let's do a happy hour where Psalms want to come and we're going to pop crazy bottles that we know are basically for other people who are in the industry. And we're going to sort of and help educate them and push the city forward. So I do think you need a catalyst. And I think you see that happening in, in these markets. And that is happening because these are the Psalms that I believe are entrepreneurs. There are definitely Psalms that aren't entrepreneurs. That's fine. You like working the floor. You don't have that muscle. But the entrepreneurial Psalms are the ones that are like, huh, I can stay in one of these four or five markets and I can make a really good living and I can, you know, potentially be the beverage director or something like 11 Madison Park, or I can leave this market, go to a second tier market, an emerging market, and I can be a god. <laughs> and I think that's that's what the smart people are doing. They're going to these other markets and they're helping push them forward. They're becoming insanely influential. You know, I mean, if if you go to Atlanta and you don't meet with Eduardo, who is the former beverage director of Untitled Danny Meyer Restaurant, who's now running eight or nine restaurants in Atlanta, you're crazy. I mean, and he went from running one Danny Meyer restaurant in New York to running eight or nine of the top restaurants in Atlanta. Yeah. You know, so his influence has ex has exploded. He's influencing how that city is drinking. Um, and I think that that's really, really interesting and important. And so I think that's exactly what happened in Pittsburgh. It's like you have that person and then it will attract others because then people say, hey, well, I don't have to go to a, a, one of the other cities to work under you know a really great psalm. I can just work here because now there's a community here. It really is building the community. You need someone who builds the community. That's, I think, what's the most important. Yeah. And I was being maybe a little glib in the past uh, earlier, but I do think there's also something to the idea of the sort of expanded social media reach of wine um, yeah. and of the community of, you know, sommeliers and wine professionals online who interact with one, one another. Because I think the other part about this is that wine markets are way less parochial than they used to be. You know, there's just everyone kind of knows what everyone else is drinking. And, and we saw this, I think, really, really strikingly with food a decade ago, where all of a sudden, if a, if a dish, if someone created a dish or someone had a really new concept, six months later, it was in restaurants all over the country or even all over the world. There just was no, there was no there were no secrets anymore. And I mean, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think there's some some good things to that. Although I'm sure some chefs were a little annoyed to see their dish riffed on endlessly and endlessly. But I think in wine in particular, it is really great because it creates this sort of sense of like, well, I don't need to only rely on the the three or four other, you know, dedicated wine professionals in my city for ideas for what's cool and interesting. I can follow 2000 people on Instagram and I can go on the wine forums and I can listen to this podcast or whatever, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> please. But, uh, you know, those, those are, there are so many ways to get access to that information and it makes, again, sort of creating these markets or building these markets up, I guess, a lot more viable than maybe it was. So I think some of it too is like timing is everything. And we are at a time now where people are moving around the country where you're right. They're, they're totally both 
why industry professionals and just people in general are fleeing some of the really expensive cities. We've seen, obviously, the cost of living in, in parts of this country go through the roof. And people are like, you know, hey, I, I want that $100,000 lifestyle and the $40,000 a year salary in Atlanta or wherever. And and I think that is that is cool. So my my last kind of thought about this, and and it's interesting because I think we touched on it a little bit from the sort of winery perspective, but maybe from a wine drinking perspective, as someone who wants to go and enjoy wine, whether they're living in one of these places or uh, visiting or whatever, like how do you know if the medium sized city you're in has a good wine scene if you're not, let's say, diligently researching those things online? Like what are, what, I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but do you have some thoughts as to like specifically, not spe- not necessarily specific wines, but like, is there, are there any tells? I mean, I think uh, a city has a good wine scene if it has a good wine shop. Um, so if there's a, a shop in the city that, you know, is really trying to specialize in something, um, it has a really great wine scene. Um you know, I think that's more important even than a restaurant with a great wine list. Uh, you have to have people who have the ability to go out and buy these things. So if you have a, a restaurant with a really good list, but then everyone's still only getting their wines from World Market and Publix, which again, great stores, they have great bottles, but they don't have some of the, you know, l- smaller production wines that are really cool and sort of geeky and help you learn a lot more about wine. Um then you know it may not be a market that's that's yet ready to explode but as long as there's a good shop i think that's a pretty good sign yeah i would agree i think the other one for me is you know we've talked about wine bars and wine bars to me are like we could do a whole show on them i think they're fascinating and com- and confusing uh entities but i would yes. say that like if you uh, my my one of my standards is if i'm visiting somewhere is i you know i ask around a little bit like hey is there a wine bar you recommend and then if you go in there and there are more than 10 people in there, you're probably in a good wine market. I have had the unfortunate experience of going to lots of play, lots of wine bars and being like one of only two people in there at seven o'clock <laughs> on a Thursday night. And you're just like, man, what is going on? Because in the end, like to support these kind of communities, you also just need a lot of people who like drinking wine. And it's yes. important to have sommeliers who are enthusiastic and it's important to have you know, people in the cities who have money to spend. But if those people are not spending money on wine, if they're if wine drinking culture, for whatever reason, has not taken hold, it certainly could. But I would be leery of places where if you go into a restaurant and no one is drinking wine or you go into a wine bar and there's no one there and it's not, you know, really weird off hours. That to me is always like a, a, a little bit of like a, I get a little restless because I start to wonder, like, am I where am I? Like, did I did I walk into the wrong bar or restaurant? Which happens for sure. Um, yeah, because, again, I think it's very easy for us to overlook that, you know, in the end for every sommelier, there has to be. I don't know, a few hundred wine drinkers for that, for those economics to work. And, uh, and if you, if there aren't those people, it can be awfully hard to convert them into, uh, wine drinkers. But at the same time, that is certainly happening across this country. Like people didn't used to drink much wine in the U S and they do now. So, uh, it's, it's happening everywhere. I just think you can definitely tell it's happening faster in some places. Oh, it's definitely happening faster in some places. And I think, you know, part of the reason for that is there are producers that are starting to really believe in these places as well. And they're going there and they're bringing their good products there and they're investing in these places because at the end of the day, you know, there's because of digital, because we have Instagram, because we have sites like ours, um, you have the ability anywhere in the country to read and learn about these wines. So you want to then be able to try them and drink them. And so what that means is the producers really have to buy into going there and providing their wines. 
And when they do, I think I think good things will happen. I mean, it's it's definitely a very exciting. I think you're right. We're um, you know sort of wrap this up. I really think that the wine world or the drinks world in general is about ten years behind the food world uh, in terms of what's happening trend wise. And you and it's it's crazy because we are in this place now where people know, you know, people are drinking wines from from Beaujolais right now, and you can go to smaller markets and there are very good. Crew Beaujolais on the list, yep. and you're like, wow, like this is this is nuts. What is this doing on this list? And this smaller city, uh, you know, and where are the games was? Oh yeah, they got it from Kermit Lynch, of course they did. Uh, but you know, like that's <laughs> that's how it happens. It's crazy. Sure. I, and I want to add, like, to that note, my little spiel and pitch, and you know, you sort of talked about how for sommeliers they have the opportunity to go to some of these markets and really have an impact. I also think. You have an opportunity to go to these markets and really sell wine that you love. It doesn't have to be the absolute cutting edge thing that no one has ever heard of because you can go to a smaller, a somewhat smaller, somewhat newer market and sell Cru Beaujolais. You can sell, yep. um, you know, you can sell Nebula, you can sell Northern Rhone Syrah, you can sell Riesling. You can, uh, well, maybe not. Riesling's hard to sell to anyone, but whatever. You can pick, you know, your uh, Loire Valley, your Loire Valley, Shannon Blanc, whatever it is, and not have to kind of do the thing that. Frankly, I think a lot of Psalms and the biggest markets have to do, which is look for shit that no one's ever heard of before, because of course their guests have tried, you know, they've tried Sauvignon, or of course they've tried, you know, uh, Moulin Avant. Like those aren't new to them anymore. So because the sommelier apparently has to always be, especially in our modern culture, has to be the conduit to the new in, right. I would guess, New York City, you have to be, you know, so far down the path of what's new that you might have gone past what you actually like. And I think the great thing about being in some of these um, emerging markets is you can focus on the wine you love, the wine you truly want to drink. And because for the most part, that wine might be new to the vast majority of your guests, you're still getting to have that same like flipping the light switch on moment without having to do it with something that's like really fucking weird. <laughs> I totally agree. I think, look, at the end of the day, these emerging markets are just even more exciting for the world of wine. Uh, it means that there's just so much opportunity here. Um, I think America as a wine market hasn't at all seen its full potential for how much it's going to grow and how much it's going to change. I think that's super cool. Um, and it's just amazing that almost anywhere now in the United States, you can you can get a really good glass of wine. Yeah, it's a good time to be an American. Well, it okay. is. Well, well, at least a wine-loving American. Wine-loving American. Let's say that. <laughs> awesome. All right, Zach. Well, this was a very interesting conversation. I look forward to having another one with you next week. Sounds great, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Grimberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Zaladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.